0: This is the Kaplan Financial Education Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of July the 26, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to take a look this week at a number of things that happened here as we get here towards the end of the month of July. And as summer continues, we now look at some more neat tax developments that are coming up, specifically this week, we're going to take a look at a case where a taxpayer failed in attempting to use the doctrine that's cited most often in tax court decisions. That is the doctrine of the Cohen Doctrine. We want to discuss what that doctrine is, why it exists, and why it most often doesn't work well for taxpayers. But there definitely are cases it will work, in. it's just not the case that this taxpayer had. We'll also discuss a notice that got put in the Federal Register this week that the IRS is proposing to bring out a Form 7203 that will be used by individuals on their 1040 whenever they have an S-Corporation pass-through, stay on interest in the S-Corporation, and that S-Corporation for the year in question either passes out an item of loss or has a distribution. And we'll talk about what that form is why that form really is just taking worksheets we already have but then why is it important about moving it to a form so I have that little bit of discussion next we go to a case where an executor was attempting to get an offer and compromise accepted by the IRS for the estate based on estate taxes but the executor was trying to limit that to just the assets remaining in the estate The IRS was arguing that no, they had to consider the potential recovery from the executor because of distributions the executor had authorized at a time when the executor was aware that there might be a tax bill coming due. And we'll talk about what the tax court said. Is that appropriate to consider an offer and compromise? And also, what are the rules about what happens if an executor decides to make a distribution from an estate at a time when there might be an IRS liability, even if we haven't yet figured out for sure what that is. And finally, we'll talk about something that actually we had told you earlier in the year was going to be coming, but the IRS last Monday went ahead and opened up a website where you can go ahead and submit a power of attorney or an information authorization form. You can sign it as well as the client can sign it to accept it. And we'll talk about first thing is the limits of that program, the advantages, which is going to primarily be the fact that if we don't get shunted aside for extra processing, which we don't actually know what would cause that. But if not, if the client accepts the power of attorney and gets everything done and gets signature done online that power of attorney will go directly into the system rather than going through what has become an extremely long period of time that it takes for something to make it out of the power of attorney system when you send one in you may know that it is taking months now to get that posted so that you you know it'll be on file when you talk to an agent and you're not constantly having to fax copies of it every time you get on the phone line, which is enough fun anyway. So we'll talk about that as well. But the first case we want to look at here is the case of Fagenbaum versus Commissioner. Tax Court Summary Opinion 2021 19. This case was decided on the 19th of July 2021. And this is a case of a taxpayer who is attempting to use a doctrine that came from the case of Cohen v. Commissioner, 39 F. Second 540 to Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision from 1930. If you're not aware, the Cohen in the Cohen decision was Broadway producer and vaudeville producer George M. Cohen, as well as performer. Yeah, that guy has a statue in Times Square. Well. George M. was apparently not very good at keeping records, shall we say, and in fact kept lousy records. And eventually, the IRS examined George, and George had no records to back back up a bunch of expenses related to his production activities. The IRS took the position, and the Board of Tax Appeals, predecessor to the tax court, backed the IRS up on the position that if George had no records, George had no deduction. The Cohen case, the Second Circuit decision, in that decision came down and said, no, that's not right. However, if a taxpayer has, clearly we know he or she incurred expenses. Uh, The guy got his statue on Times Square. It's there today not because he didn't really produce shows and didn't really incur expenses involved in you know setting up shows, setting up tours, doing all the kind of work somebody producing those types of shows would do. That's you know, he's there because he actually did this sort of thing so said so obviously he did it. Then the question becomes can we reasonably estimate what the expenses were? that should be allowed as a deduction. So that gets us the basics of the Cohen Rule. So the Cohen Rule is, to be honest, the equivalent of what you referred to in football as the Hail Mary pass. The idea being that, you know, we are in deep trouble because not having records is always not good in the tax court or in front of an IRS agent. But this is an attempt to say that even though we don't have records, we can otherwise establish enough to justify at least some allowance for the expenses for which we are missing records. In this particular case, the taxpayer here, it involved an S-corporation that this gentleman was a shareholder in, and the S-corporation did not have the records to back up the purchases from a specific vendor that's kind of a problem especially because it was a relatively significant amount of potential expenses that were in play the IRS of course turned it down entirely now we go back to how do we do the cohen decision well to do it as i said there are two major hurdles that you'll hear every time the cohen decision gets brought up first the taxpayer has to show a rational basis upon which the court can make an estimate of what was actually, you know, paid out by the company or what was actually the actual deduction should be. So that's number one. And quite often that creates a problem for us because the problem is we can't really find out what that number is at least not easily, you know, we can't figure out how to come up with a number. We may know that, yeah, he incurred expenses. I think in this case, the court would be pretty clear that obviously he had incurred expenses and even that that contract existed. But the problem comes down to, can we reasonably estimate how much he had incurred? And that's, you know, kind of the second problem always in these cases. Because if you can't do that, If we cannot figure out a way to estimate what's out there, we have a problem in doing that. Well, in this case, they didn't have the records, as I said. Well, that'd be the easiest way. And obviously, you don't need to use a Cohen decision if you're going down that route. In this case, what he did, he went through, and the court describes, he went through a series of calculations attempting to estimate what the profit should have been on the job, roughly working things up and kind of backed into what cost of sales should have been. But the problem the court had was he didn't have anything, really, to back up any of his intermediate steps. He didn't have like bank statements, he didn't have some checks, some indication that he was kind of on point with the numbers in question. Rather, he just had his calculations. Now, this case was interesting because... Even, you know, normally what ends up in a case like this is that the court just finds the taxpayer and says that all we have is self-serving testimony and there's nothing here and they don't really believe that there was a good faith effort being put forward. In this case, the court actually commended and said, you know, he believed the guy was trying to compute a proper number, but the catch was there just wasn't enough there. He was using very, very, very rough estimates. And the problem is, the second key of the Cohen case, in addition to having to have a way to estimate, we're going to bear heavily against the party who doesn't have the records unless they have a really good reason for not having them. In this case, there wasn't as far as I could tell, ever mentioned in the case, any sort of really good reason why these particular purchases weren't documented. Rather, probably the issue was we have relatively sloppy documentation. They were able to probably get information from the other vendors that they had purchases from. You know, for whatever reason, this vendor could be out of business, could be any reason why when the exam came, the records weren't available and they had to try to back their way into it. So what this tells us is like we are normally used to, it's the Cohen case is never a perfect case and you would prefer not to use it. But it is something at least to give you something to talk about, especially for a client you inherit you know, they they weren't your client, they get an exam notice, they come in and you discover this problem, at least you might be able to talk the service into allowing something using Cohen. But definitely in the tax court, Cohen works rarely. It does work every so often and it's cited enough times because bad records is kind of a norm in taxes. But it does work enough that You know, you can't say there's never one, but it's cited so often that in reality, the winners versus losers, the losers way outnumber the winners in the case of those trying to use Cohen. So the best solution is, if you can, try to make sure your clients don't need to use Cohen. Next up, we have a notice that was published in the Federal Register. This is a titled Proposed Collection Comment Request for Form 7203 in the Federal Register, Volume 86, Number 135, on July 19, 2021. And what we're told in this notice in the Register is that the IRS is asking for comments on a proposed Form 7203 uh, that will be issued that is going to be called the S-Corporation Shareholders' Stock and Debt Basis Limitations and Related Instructions. Now, as we know, stockholders of an S-corporation are primarily responsible for calculating basis. Even though a lot of tax software for S-corporations and partnerships will include a basis worksheet or at least offer to prepare one for each partner and shareholder, the reality is it is not the responsibility of the partnership or S-corp to prepare that basis schedule. And secondly... In some cases, they simply can't know what the basis is. There are various situations where there's information that only the shareholder or only the partner has. So generally, the burden on proving basis falls on the partner or the shareholder, in this case, the shareholder. Now, for a number of years, we've been told that if certain things happen, we are supposed to have attached a plain paper version of the calculation of basis and this would be required in those same circumstances so as in the past this would take over for the plain paper attachment in any case where the s corporation reports a loss of some sort on the return the taxpayer would be required to attach their basis computation or if the s corporation makes a distribution during the year then we have to attach the form 7203, at least once it's published. Now, currently we're required to attach, as noted, the plain paper computation. And you may have remembered a couple of years ago they added check boxes on Schedule E. Now, in the years before those check boxes, for a number of years before they put that on, that said, oh yeah, we've attached a basis computation. The instructions still told you to do so. Now I read a lot, realize a lot of people may not have read that. But you were told those basis computations were supposed to be attached for the S-Corporations. The worksheets that we have had to support that and that were in the 2020 uh, Schedule K-1 Instructions to Shareholders are going to serve apparently as the basis for this form. The form currently exists, in fact, this is kind of interesting, It only, when you're told, yeah, we want comments on this, but if you go to the IRS's website and look in the draft form sections, you won't find these. Rather, you have to contact an email address at the IRS, after which you will get the proposed form, and it's actually interestingly labeled an internal use version only for the actual form, The instructions look more like traditional draft postings, but the 7203 is still a kind of internal use, and its date was actually January of this year, which is also kind of interesting. They waited this long to start asking for guidance, considering that they didn't change anything apparently since late January on this. Now, what will be on it is just like what's in the instructions. And for those of you looking at the slides, you have you know kind of video version of this, Uh, you're going to see there what was on that form. And it's going to be this level of detail, all the stuff we have, and calculating down to your basis, doing it in the manner that we're required to do so for an S corporation. Generally with an S corporation, things that are positive, that add to basis, are the first things we add in, like contributions of capital. And then all the positive numbers that are coming in off the K-1, after that, we then take add that up. At that point, we subtract off distributions. If distributions exceed that basis number for the year, then we have a taxable distribution. Generally, taxes, is a capital gain. In fact, would be taxed as a capital gain, long term or short, term depending on the holding period of the stock in question. Following that, after basis after distributions, We then go ahead and start computing things like non-deductible expenses and with a little note about the fact that if you've made the election to deduct the others first, that you have to treat those as if they were other deduction expenses and working our way down to the stock's basis at the end of the year. There is a second schedule and which will become now aimed to be part B of this calculation or Section B of the form, I should say. And that is a calculation of the shareholder's debt basis. And it breaks into two pieces. The first part of the basis, actually three pieces, I guess, uh, deals with just looking at the actual stated amount of the debt, not caring what the basis is, just wanting to know what the loan balance is. And you do this with a column for each Debt you have, including identifying if it is a formal note or if it's being taxed under the open account debt rules. Second section asks us to compute the adjustments to debt basis. So now we're going to start out with our basis in the notes and we're going to do the restorations, you know, and all of that information to see if we have debt basis at the end, whatever that may be at the end of the year. And finally, in the third section, of this work second worksheet, we go ahead and we compute our gain on repayment. We'll give the total repayment for the loan, the amount of the repayment that's non-taxable, that is a return of capital, and the amount that's reportable gain. And again, that's generally a ratio. You cannot just say, hey, look, I had a $10,000 loan. I had $5,000 worth of basis remaining. Well, that means I, I could pay back 5000 and not pay tax. No, you pay back 5000 in that case, 2500 of that repayment is going to be taxable because you only have 50% basis in the face. And that's something to watch for. When we talk about stock basis, we're fine that way. As long as you have stock basis, you can make a distribution. But just because you have basis in debt does not mean you can make a distribution up to the basis and not pay tax. Finally, the third schedule is a schedule that is meant to be listing your allocable losses and deduction items and carryovers. And it lists all the various types of items that are income deduction. Then it has five columns, the first one for current year losses and deductions. Then you have carryover amounts from the prior year. The third column is the allowable loss from stock basis from those first two columns. The fourth column is the allowable loss related to debt basis from those two columns. And finally, which becomes the net left over, uh, what's the carryover amount of the various items? And so you break them down by type, and you're also figuring out what the basis is as the form comes together. The IRS is asking for comments. They are asking they be received on or before September 17th of 2021. Yes, I, 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 I realize what that date is. And I realize that that's basically the due date for the tax return, you know, for last year. And I'm sure that occurred to the IRS as well. So, yeah, if you want to do comments, you probably want to work on them now, not as you're finishing your S-Corp returns. The other thing to note is, why are we moving it to a form? The most obvious reason to move it to a form is because that's going to be captured. That data will be captured and could be analyzed by the service. So my read on this is the service is telling us they are getting more serious about following up on basis issues for S-corporations, and they want to see the calculations and want to see information. And when they come in for exams, they're going to be looking for backup for those items. So be aware of that. Also, never forget that for basis, you really have to have records going back to the first day you got in the S-Corporation or partnership because basis is a cumulative calculation. Just like for C-Corps, when we talk about earnings and profits. That's a cumulative calculation. You have to be able to go back to day one to compute it. Basis is the same thing. It is cumulative. Cumulative. You have to be able to go back to the day you got that particular interest in order to be able to determine basis. So for record keeping, yeah, it's not just going to be these schedules, and should remind people because somebody's going to go this route because the IRS have a schedule. Just because the IRS didn't examine, let's say, to 2021. Let's say they really get it done this year. Just because in 2028. The IRS had never examined 2021 does not mean you're not required to produce information from 21 to show the cumulative calculation of basis is correct. Get a lot of issues where people get confused and don't realize that the only statute that exists is the statute on the IRS assessing tax for 2021. Well, they're not going to assess tax for 21. But information from 21 will be necessary to justify any deduction you claim in 28 or any amount you receive in 28 that you're going to say does not represent uh, a gain or a distribution in excess of basis. So, yeah, don't, don't just assume now because these are in the returns that you can junk all basis information. Basis information should be a continuous and permanent. Record maintained by the taxpayer, because on an exam, you can very well be asked to go back to day one to produce basis. Next up, we're going to take a look at the estate of Quang Lee versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2021-92. And this was a decision that came down on the 21st of July. Now, this is a case dealing with some rules. That are involved for an executor's potential liability for unpaid taxes. And Treasury Regulation 20.2002 1 basically describes this issue fundamentally. If an executor makes a distribution that renders the estate unable, To pay its estate taxes. So, if you pay any other liability that includes paying the um, beneficiaries a distribution from the estate, if that's paid at a time when the executor knew or should have reasonably known that there was a possibility there would be estate taxes due or any sort of tax due in excess of the assets that would be remaining after that distribution the executor can find him or herself personally liable for paying that amount back or paying it for the trust or estate. Well, this was an estate that actually had been in the tax court before, and the court had ruled and come up with a number for the tax due. And the problem was, at the end of the day, the estate didn't really have the money with which to pay the tax. So going through this, the estate was trying to get an offer in compromise to get, you know, have the IRS accept just the hundred and eighty thousand plus dollars that were available in the estate at this time to satisfy what was otherwise nearly a half million dollar liability. Well, the catch became that we had certain things happen on different dates and these dates become important. In April of 2006, the IRS issued, after doing an exam, issued a notice of deficiency of just under $1.5 million in taxes, interest, and penalty. Okay, they couldn't settle it, so the taxpayer disputed the amounts and filed a petition in the United States Tax Court. On March 24th of 2010, the U.S. Tax Court basically entered its decision and said, you know, you owe us a little over $500,000 in tax. And on June 19th of 2010, the IRS assessed the tax due. Now, what becomes interesting is the distributions that were made. And most particularly was one that was made on February 27th of 2007. That distribution took the estates remaining assets at the time which were more than the 500 plus 1000 that the tax court eventually determined were due as i recall it was less than the 1.5 million the irs was asserting but more than that but it was still greater assets than the 500,000 and essentially distributed out all the assets and got them down uh, just down to the 180,000 level now The IRS said, you know what, you're applying for an offer and compromise. You've got to include that distribution as amounts that are reasonably collectible, right? Reasonably could be collected from the tax court or from, you know, for the estate. It's part of the reasonable collection potential. The IRS is not limited to looking at the assets of the estate in this case. They can look at the assets that they could recover from the executor. Now, the executor tried to defend himself in a couple of ways. First thing, of course, he tried to argue that they can't use that type of assets. The court wasn't too thrilled with that. But number two, he tr- said, well, I relied on the tax advisor. You know, and you know, when it, what I heard from him is that I, it was okay to make that distribution. Now, the court had a little problem with this. Because what the court found was the tax advisor, who apparently was a tax attorney, handling the case. It appears most likely, you got to read between the lines a little bit, but it seems most likely that the attorney had told the estate that he felt he was going to win on the issues the IRS was challenging. And to be honest, two-thirds of the tax penalty and interest went away by the time the tax court was done. OK, so this executor, who is, a, who is an attorney and a municipal judge, this executor said, well, you know, I based on that, based on, you know, the advice of the uh, of the attorney, I made the distribution. But the court noted he never there was no evidence that they had actually asked the tax advisor about the advisability of making a distribution. In fact, I strongly suspect the tax advisor would have advised against it, despite the fact he says we're going to win. And, you know, um, let's put it this way. Attorneys that, you know, attorneys that go to trial, you know, the try cases are always confident they're going to win 100%. The problem is both the IRS attorney going in this case and the attorney for the estate were probably each convinced they were going to 100% prevail. That's the way this tends to work. Obviously, they can't both be right. And in this case, neither of them was right. You know, it was an award of one-third of what the IRS had been going after. So it would be a totally different question, and there was no evidence introduced that they ever really asked the attorney who was going to be trying the case, uh, should we make this distribution, as I say. They tend to get a lot more conservative at that point, saying, well, you better not make the distribution. While I feel confident in our ability to win this case, you know, you can't guarantee anything in court. And it's always possible that you'll need more than the remainder that would be there. Understanding that, obviously, the heirs are probably pushing like mad to get money, right? They want their distribution. Why don't I have it? Why are you holding on to this money you know, I, I need the money. I want it. So get it over here. The tax court ruled that the distribution was made at a time because it the executor was on notice that there was a $1.5 million proposed assessment. The executor is trained as an attorney. This will work against him. He's not some, you know, unsophisticated taxpayer, unsophisticated individual who didn't really understand the tax consequences who might reasonably have not understood that the, you know, the attorney, the trial attorney, you know, might not, you know, merely saying that he feels confident in the case does not mean it's a green light to distribute. He should have figured this out. There was a problem. He should have known there was a possibility as a judge. There's a possibility that the case might not turn out the way counsel is telling the parties that he thinks most likely. So they said essentially what the court said was when the executor made a distribution once that at least at least by the time the notice of fishing was out there and he made that distribution, he made that distribution entirely at his own risk. If it turns out that they lost the a tax court decision said they owed tax and the tax owed was more than $180,000, he was clearly exposed to the risk of having to write a check out of his own funds if he can't get the money back from the beneficiaries. So they said that's why the IRS should consider that as part of the reasonable collection potential. If this executor is collectible, then the IRS doesn't need to compromise the debt They just can go ahead, take the $180,000 the estate has now, and seize appropriate funds from the executor. So this does suggest it is really important that people take care. And probably, assuming this judge really did misunderstand that, you know, I'm talking about the executor, uh, it is important to try to be careful and make sure clients know that when I say I'm confident in a position, an exam we never can guarantee in an exam. It's always going to be at least some risk that we're going to lose the case. We're going to lose some part of the case. Uh, Normally, now we did talk last week about the IRS having no justification whatsoever. That case, it probably was relatively clear. But even in those cases, you know, you still got some risk going to court. And in most cases, the service has some justification. There's a reason why we're going to court because each side has some justification for their position. And even though each side may believe their justification should carry the day, reality is, in many, many cases, we're going to get an actual result somewhere in the middle there. So you have to be really, really careful in that area. Finally, let's talk about the IRS rolled out last Monday a new option And the title of the page is Use Tax Pro Account, IRS website, that was put up on the 18th of July. In this case, the IRS had promised, as you remember, we discussed this earlier, when they began accepting electronic scans of, you know, signed power of attorneys, that you could do that to get that in the system instead of mailing them in or faxing them in. At the time, they said, well, that won't speed it up. But we're working on a system to allow you to directly key the numbers, key the amounts into the CAF system. And that should greatly speed up how quickly your items can be posted to the IRS website. So, in this case, we're going to be talking about the fact the IRS has now put that out. They call it the Tax Pro Account Application. And it's going to be able to allow you to submit and sign the forms 2848 power of attorney and declaration representative or form 8821 tax information authorization how this mechanically will work is that you as the tax pro will first have to set up an account with the IRS and verify your identity you know going through all those KBA questions knowledge based authentication questions verify your identity so you're okay. You would then submit the entire power of attorney document, you know, all the details that will be in there. You will then approve that and sign it. So you'll start things or process. At that point, the IRS will push the the documents or the electronic documents onto the taxpayer who will then also sign electronically. And if the taxpayer accepts and signs electronically, then we have a power of attorney, which in most, but they do tell us not all cases, will go directly into the CAF system and means you'll be recorded and be authorized. So if your client does this work, clicks the box and accepts it, in theory, you could then be talking two minutes later, probably more than two minutes later because it'll take longer than that to get through on the phone lines these days, But in theory, you could be talking in the same day with somebody at the IRS who would be able to verify that you have a power of attorney on file. So that's how it's supposed to work. As I noted, it promises much faster processing than what we've had before, which is good. Now, what's not so good? Well, there are a few things here. First thing is, it only impacts... A very limited number of forms and types. So, most specifically, it's going to work for the Form 1040, is what it'll work for. So, we'll have 1040, and we will have a limited set of other options. So, you'll be able to do that particular power of attorney, but that's going to be it. We're going to have a very limited set of forms that will be allowed. It'll be Form 1040. It'll be a split spousal assessment for innocent spouse relief. You can get your powers in on that. That will work. If we're talking about an issue for a shared responsibility payment or a, or including one with a split spousal assessment, those will be covered and any civil penalties related to the periods of March, June, September and December. If anything else is involved, you still have to get the standard pin and ink version of the power of attorney form. You won't be able to use this system, right? So that's probably one of the issues. Now, the data that the tax preparer will need to get this is they will have to provide, you'll have to provide your CAF number. If you don't have one yet, you have to go through, you know, file a regular power of attorney form with a blank CAF, get one issued before you're going to be able to use this. So you have to have a CAF number uh, the, the name and address as currently on file with their CAF number per IRS records. Now, be careful here. I've already heard of some people that have had rejects because of CAF mismatches, because whatever they keyed in was not in agreement with what the IRS system was showing for that. So, and that may be a little more interesting because it may be a little fun to get all that to work. It may matter, you know, did you spell out Avenue or not, right? You know, various things could impact that. So be aware of that. There may be problems. Any address will need to be in the U.S. or the District of Columbia. So one of the U.S. states or District of Columbia, It, you know, on that basis, it would not include the territories. So Puerto Rico, uh, U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, etc. cetera. Would not apparently be okay to be submitting that if you're there. You have to do the taxpayer's identification number. The taxpayer's name and address also as currently on file. And again, the taxpayer must be in the 50 United States or the District of Columbia. That address has to be there. The tax matters and the tax years for which you are requesting authority. Now, if all of that is deemed appropriate by the IRS, then, you know, we're OK. Now, in addition, some items aren't going to be covered. And that is, you know, you'll need to use a paper if you're using any special use not recorded on the CAF, which is line four of the 2848 or the form 8821. If you have additional acts authorized, that are going to be on your 2848 and specific acts not authorized. Line 5B on 2848 and the retention revocations of prior powers of attorneys or tax information items, those also can't be processed that way. Now, one of the key issues that's also going to complicate your life is to do that signing online, the client has to set up and authenticate using that same knowledge-based authentication system. They have to do that and get their own electronic account set up so they can approve the request, right, if they approve it. Once they approve it, you'll be notified. You might be notified they've approved it, but it's being sent for processing. Or you might be notified it's been approved and it's in the CAF file. But that's the nature of this. The IRS does obviously plan to try to expand this some more. Uh, We're going to have to learn just how picky that address stuff is going to be. I think that is a potential pain point because you may have some slight differences in how you're writing the address versus how it was keyed in by the service or how you actually entered it in your tax software last year, that could cause us problems. You know, what did you abbreviate? What didn't you? I would certainly say make sure you check the tax return, the most recent one, for the taxpayer uh, to see exactly how you put the address in and make sure you try to put it in the same way. Well, that, you know, we are now actually getting ready. I'm actually coming up to August, and I will actually do my first in-person courses, at least scheduled currently, uh, in Arizona. So August 19th, doing Income Taxation and Trust in the States. August 20th, Assisting the Survivors, the CPA's role in the seeds Estate. And on August 21st, Partnerships and S-Corporations Taxation Advanced Issues. Now, as I say, this will be in their offices in Phoenix. Um, it is both in-person and webcast. That's the way they were being done before the pandemic. Of course, all of this is contingent on everything staying nice and about where we're at now. So everybody's OK. We're still operating. There are no new restrictions where the rules come down. So I always put that caveat in there. And also, you know, if you are not currently comfortable with going into a room with people like that, that's fine. The webcast option is still there, and everybody learned how to do webcasts in the past year, so, you know, we'll have that available. But I look forward to seeing some of you there in, you know, one of the three courses that I'm going to be doing for Arizona in August. It's a way to get things restarted. We'll see how things work out from there. This has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of July the 26th, 2021. As always, this is brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I will be checking in on the uh, discussion forums in Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Washington, Illinois, and also looking at Idaho and seeing what goes on there. So if you have any questions and you're in one of those state societies, you're a member of one of them, uh, post. And if I see it, I'll try to see if I can give useful information. Otherwise, if you have a quick question, Ed Zollers at currentfilataxdevelopment.com is the email address to find me at. We will be doing courses you know, all over, you know, at various locations this year. We'll see how it breaks down live versus not. To be totally honest, it's happening in Arizona first for me, largely because there's no travel involved, so that that's the lowest risk form, right? So we're going to see, and why that's important is. You know, if it turns out you want to hold a live course and only two people are in the room and 35 are on the web, well, it's not going to pay for the travel. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're going to have to it's going to take some time to see how things come in and recover. So we'll take a look at that. But I'm certainly looking forward to seeing at least a few people this year as we go in and do our continuing education. Be sure and join us next week for more current federal tax developments.